0: Uprise Radio and 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians on the land which we broadcast. We pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging and we recognise we live and work on stolen land.
1: When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems.
2: They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime... They're rapists They say my bloodline full of rapists Killers, massive dope dealers My family travel here to make a living For their children, I'm a citizen Born in California by the border They say we the animals, but it's my people Getting slaughtered, Mr. Trump You should've never opened up your mouth When you know 95% of America's black or brown It's a shame how I gotta speak for all my people Struggling, if it wasn't for recession Then none of us would be hustling Got the devil trying to kill us Enslave us like we prisoners Now everybody looking, at my people like we the criminals california belongs to mexico and you know we should be walking with picket signs outside of your home with a picture of donald trump burning up in the flames if they don't like it i love it we like animals in a cage if that's what y'all want to label us then that's what we gonna be but y'all ain't never did nothing to try to help this, this is, is a letter I wrote. This is all I wrote that's dedicated to you dedicated you, you. you shouldn't have spoken my people this is a letter i wrote, I wrote. that's dedicated that's to that donald trump i felt like i had to do it this is the
0: And that was a letter to Donald Trump by Young Blue, who is a 19-year-old hip-hop artist from the US. And that was actually written uh, in the lead-up to the 2016 election. But we are on the brink of another election with Donald Trump and you are listening to Uprise Radio and we're going to be having a chat about the state of the world, the state of the US world. And Jackson, good to hear you and see you again.
1: Hello, James. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear that from a 19 year old artist four years ago and I you know I think one of the things from a distance that's been frustrating watching what's happening in America is that over and over again we get this optimism that there's going to be this mass, mass youth turnout to change American politics you know that there's enough anger there and enough understanding and then it, it just doesn't seem to eventuate and you know I'm not 100% sure what the reasons are but I hope that 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 that's going to change this election, even though I'm I'm really despondent about the candidate. But I but you know, as in the Democratic candidate, of course he's better than Trump, and 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 Harris is better than Trump. But I mean, it's such a low bar, and. Mm. Yeah, I'm really really looking forward to having a a longer discussion about something that we often drift towards in the show, James, Uh, but now we get to spend 30 minutes on it, so it's great.
0: Let's get into the discussion. So just like every four years, the United States has its most important election in history. On Tuesday, November 3rd, US citizens, well, those that have a day off are registered to vote, are registered to one of the two parties and don't have a criminal record, can vote. Now, I doubt many listeners will be hoping for a Trump victory, but what is the alternative? 77-year-old Vice President, or former Vice President, I should say, Joe Biden, and former Californian Attorney General Kamala Harris. We're going to discuss the Democrats, the Black Lives Matter campaign, and what hope we can see on the ground in the US. So to join us today, we have uh, our two US election experts that we've spoken to earlier this year, Melissa McGlansky, writer and comedian, and also contributing editor for Jacobin, Daniel Lopez. Melissa, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having us. G'day yeah, guys, thanks for having
0: us. Okay, well, I guess to start with, maybe we want to start with the Black Lives Matter protests, And I think that, you know, from a distance, this is, I guess, both, um, you know, massively inspiring and also, I guess, a bit scary in terms of the kind of repression and, you know, the the way that it's playing out for the people on the ground there. We see in Portland at the moment, the protests there with the You know, blood red sky as the fires burn in the background, and you know that city seems to have come to almost civil war. Uh, Melissa and Daniel, I wonder if you can give us, you know, your thoughts on what you see on the ground there and cause for hope.
4: Cause for hope. Oh boy. Um, (laughs) No, I I don't know. I mean, protests are always um, evocative things, right? They make us feel a lot of things. In this case, uh, it was a mixture of things, but the main emotion. I felt was fear, really a deep rooted fear at the extent that the police state has kind of taken over and really uh, overstretched their capacity. And um, yeah, the, the the like threads of videos of police violence everywhere were certainly jarring, if not surprising. I
3: guess, yeah. uh, I will- Like, a couple of weeks ago, I saw, um, you guys know that YouTube guy, uh, All Gas, No Breaks? Like, he's just this weirdo who sort of travels the United States and interviews people. I mean, it's usually, like, interviews with, like, total, absolute maniacs, you know, like, like, frat kids or something. But, like, he's one of the only journalists I've seen that went and interviewed people in Portland. Um, And, you know, very sensitively. Like, he sort of just, like, turns up and is respectful and asks people's opinions. And and what I was struck by uh, was the incredible political sophistication of the writers. Like, you know, you got a whole spectrum of views um, on display there, you know, from... I guess kind of what you might describe as a radical identity politics to like democratic socialism to kind of, you know, you name it, like there's a whole lot of different views there and um, like a real determination. So, you know, when I saw that, I was like, Jesus, you know, that's impressive that like, you know, and sort of a condemnation of the media that no one else goes and just asks these guys what they think. But like, you know, it spoke to like a political awareness that exists like in mass numbers in the States. And then like, especially
4: in Portland, certainly I went to school in Oregon. I did my undergrad at university of Oregon, and I was not surprised at all to see Portland as a hotbed for these kinds of things.
3: I mean, the thing, you know, and and the result, like, I mean, it's, it's been brutal, but like the popularity of defunding the police is, you know, that's, that's a, that's a huge thing. You know, I mean, it's going to take a long time to get there, but like there are city councils in the States that have taken steps in that direction. And it's just tragic that it took so much, um, police violence for things to get there.
1: Yeah, to Melissa's point, the police are making some incredible advertisements for their own defunding in their violence against citizens, like some of the imagery, uh, you know, gas canisters shot point blank into people's faces and, Mm. you know, uh, trapped people being assaulted, you know, when they're peacefully protesting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know, from a historical perspective of the shock and horror of the footage of the Vietnam War. Like, now that everybody can see... What is happening on the streets when you dare confront state violence. I think it, it, it's just pouring more and more people into the streets. But to your point, Daniel, we have seen that the mainstream media and Trump spend so much time trying to demonize protesters and cast them as responsible for violence. And I wonder, uh, Melissa, you know, when you talk to friends and family at home, you know, whether it be young people or older people that you might know, what is the feeling about the, about the protests, because there's so much work being done to undermine, uh, you know, this, this moment.
4: Yeah, it's been really interesting. It's been a mixture of things. Kind of unsurprisingly, my young activist friends sort of understood from the get-go the importance of, of what's happening, and then there was an older generation contingent of family members who took a little explaining. Um, but, yeah, it's... I was surprised at the groundswell of support for the protesters that we found eventually. It did take a little while to get there. There was a lot of, you know, disproportionate media coverage on like the looting or the uh damage to property and whether or not that can be considered violence, which I think not. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, it was interesting. People like my parents who are Democrats but, you know, a little further left than maybe most uh, were really receptive to my arguments about why the police should be defunded and why that's like a viable alternative to the system we have, which I found surprising.
0: I think it was interesting, um, Jackson, you were talking about what this reminds you of. I remember, maybe Daniel, if you can remember, um, we were protesting about the Iraq war and when the Iraqi resistance happened and the kind of conversations that you and I and others were having with people on the streets about trying to support people resisting the US in Iraq. And in in some ways it kind of reminds me of that, you know, where people want to attack the, um, the way in which people are protesting or, you know, the way in people resist an occupying force in their own country. But I think once you can get down to people, what if this was you, you know, what if you were in this situation and people start to go. And I think, you know, like, Melissa and Jackson are saying, when people can visually see this as well, people are like, well, yeah, okay, I guess I would resist in a way. And I I can see what the issue is. But, I, you know, what comes next after that? Well, after people know, you know, I think there's a great kind of, once you know, you can't unknow the kind of things that are going on in the world. But what happens next? How do these things get translated into action?
3: Yeah, that's, um, well, that's a difficult question, hey, because, like, and in a sense, it's one that every protest movement has to confront at some point, because, you know, I mean, even quite a centrally organised protest movement would have to confront this, but the Black Lives Matter movement isn't as centralised as, for example, the anti-war movement was back then. Um, I kind of, my, my opinion on this is, uh, well, progressives need to fight on a whole range of fronts, you know, so if, they're, if protest movements are a part of that um, and supporting them as part of that, then that's extremely important. That can project an issue onto the national consciousness in a big way. Um, I think labour organising is another thing, um, and it can be concurrent. It doesn't have to be in contradiction. And then, I guess, political organising, you know, and that takes different forms depending on on the politics that you have. And then I guess there has to be some sort of electoral um, aspect to it. You know, like I'm not particularly enthusiastic about old mate Joe Biden. Um, Obviously, it would be better for him to be elected than Trump. But, you know, be that as it may, there are other things you can do. You know, there could be a battle around a city council you know, and they could have power over the police. So there could be a battle around a state legislature, and that could be more attainable in the short term for progressive campaigns.
4: And we've started to see some of that. Minnesota, for example, was one of the first, um, especially like, I think it was the Minneapolis City Council mm-hmm. was one of the first to like, actually pass some bills about reassessing the the funding they're sending to police and reallocating that to more like community-based programs. So we are seeing some of that. The hope is that, that momentum doesn't die out and that we don't get a lot of these like symbolic victories that you know like the memes you see that are like what do we want police reform what did we get a black lives matter mural on the asphalt <laughs> right we want more yeah. than that
0: yeah 100 percent. i think it's interesting in australia at the moment that you know we have black lives matter protests here as well and you know it's actually one um Happen in Brisbane over another black death in custody of an Aboriginal woman um, in Brisbane. But at the same time, the COVID response in Australia is a complete law and order response. Uh, whereas in the US, I wonder, you know, if you want to talk about uh, some of the things around COVID there, but, you know, it's still able to have a conversation about defunding the police while clearly their response to um, the pandemic is less than ideal. But You know, I guess comparing that as well to in Australia, we have, you know, I think Australia's done a lot of things well with the, you know, things around the pandemic, yet we still have this threat of a police, you know, uh, police um, response to things, which I think is, um, you know, totally not needed.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I know, right? Like, it's interesting that, because, like, I mean, there is, there was a backlash against uh, Daniel Andrews' lockdown of the um, public housing towers, you know, quite a considerable backlash. Um, and, like, the Black Lives Matter rallies here were really big. And, like, that's obviously, you know, more to do with um, Indigenous deaths. Um, although there's huge parallels between the way that cops treat Aboriginal people here and, and African-Americans in the States. I kind of think part of my answer to that would be uh, understanding how the United States, it's almost like there are multiple countries in one, you know? Like, some of the cities, like Portland, for example, but, like, you know, pretty much most major cities are, like, politically incomparable to, like, the, um, I guess, bastions of the Republican Party. Um, you know, it's just such a different different experience going through there. So I guess maybe there's a, a stronger, a, a more open space for a progressive local politics in the United States. I mean, the difficulty then is national politics, which is, you know, incredibly conservative and comparatively like extremely undemocratic compared to, to mm. other democratic nations.
4: If we wanna talk about a small silver lining, to COVID, very small because I know we're going for a hope angle here. Um, One of the small things that is projected to happen because of COVID is this dispersal from major cities that we're seeing, seeing a lot more people heading out to the rural parts of America, uh, young progressive people, which is key if what we want to do is kind of balance out that electoral map, which is so skewed towards the rural areas and the less populated cities. So fingers crossed that that's the one benefit from COVID-19. Yeah, true, <laughs> true.
1: That's a really interesting point. I mean, we've touched on these two major things that are happening concurrently to this upcoming election. You know, you've know, got the, the ongoing uh, Black Lives Matter movement and you've got this global pandemic of which the U S is obviously you know, right in the front line of it. How do we think this is actually going to impact the election? Like this week, there's been revelations from veteran journalist, journalist Bob Woodward that Trump made statements saying he knew how deadly uh, COVID 19 was in February. He knew that it was a killer, he knew that it was uh, virulent and very contagious. And yet he didn't say anything along those lines for the months afterwards. But commentary has now seemed to focus on the fact that Woodward uh, ethically failed his duty by not reporting this rather than the president ethically failing his duty to do anything about it. Are we underestimating in Australia how angry Americans are about the handling of COVID-19? Melissa, do you think it's going to be a major issue in the election?
4: I, I hope we're underestimating the anger. What I fear is that there isn't enough of it. I, it should be a major issue, right? It would be criminal if it wasn't Two hundred thousand people have died. Uh, if that's not the thing at the forefront of everyone's mind when they cast their ballot on, on November third or before it, hopefully, because we're doing vote by mail, um, then I don't know what I don't know what else to do. Like, is our attention span as Americans so shortened that we can't hold that in our mind? I hope not. And it's I don't think it's so. happening right now.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> literally happening. don't happen to <laughs> remember it. Like, yeah. On that note, do you think people are going to vote? Do you think? Do you think that the people are going to vote? You know, there's all these things coming out to stop people voting. Like you've, you've just touched on the attacks on the postal service. Will we see, that, that desire, you know, when you talk to, to friends and family, are they, are they excited to vote? Are they ready to vote?
4: My friends and family are. They're, we're also towards the progressive end of that spectrum, so I don't know if that's a good read for the country as a whole, and maybe that's speaking to our point that you can't really get a good read. Even the pollsters can't get a good read on the country as a whole, but I think we are going to see a lot of enthusiasm. I know a lot of the people I'm close to are joining letter writing campaigns. There's been like a massive surge in volunteers to be poll workers, despite the fact that that is endangering their own lives at this point. I think there will be a surge of enthusiasm, like a desperate clinging enthusiasm that is certainly more about removing Trump from office than putting Biden in it.
3: Now look, that makes sense. I mean, okay, the. The, the pessimistic side, but, you know, I, I do have something optimistic to say, but, you know, the pessimistic side would be you could have a majority, a pop, you know, the, Biden could get the popular vote and Trump could win it. Um, and that, and so the election could be decided just by a handful of states um, that are disproportionately favored by the electoral college. And then, you know, one of the, well, I, I guess one of the tragedies about the situation is I think to break through that, um, you know, you need, a camba, you need a candidate and you need policies that can, I guess, inspire and that can, that can tell people your life will change in a significant way under a Biden presidency. Like the Democratic Conference that happened a, a couple of weeks back was sort of surreal. It was like this bizarre, nostalgic pastiche. It's like a, you know, a weird remake of like a '90s sitcom or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's they haven't changed anything, and it's kind of creepy. It's getting weird and like almost nihilistic. You know, the the extent to which it's just sort of fake. Um, so you know, that's a few sort things
4: of- have changed. There were more Republicans at it than normal.
3: <sighs> so- <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And AOC, I thought her thing about Bernie was great that, you know, she seconded his nomination. I was like, oh, that's still my beating heart. (laughs) A single tear dropped from my eye. I guess the counterpoint I was going to make though is like, you know, obviously as a socialist, I've been watching what the democratic Socialists of America have been doing and, you know, they've had some recent electoral successes, like apparently about a hundred thousand people in New York voted for, um, socialist in, in sort of city and state, um, elections just recently. And, you know, a whole number of them won, including Julia Salazar. So like, To me, that says there's hope that if you can get candidates that can speak well, that can appeal, that can stand for policies that actually respond to what people need, there can be engagement. Anybody but Trump sentiment might be enough to get to get things across the line. Who knows?
1: G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your dial.
0: I think, you know, obviously the um, COVID pandemic is something that is very much a part of, you know, anything that's kind of going on at the moment. And the Black Lives Matter protests, I think, will, you know, will continue, hopefully, regardless of who was elected. But, you know, something that can never be far from our mind, I think, is the, you know, what's the climate? Um, You know, how we're tackling climate, how we can restructure our economy and, you know, how we can actually move towards um, trying to actually do something about climate change. And I guess one of the kind of leads to, you know, the Green New Deal was a huge part of, you know, Became part of every candidate for the Democratic nomination. And I guess it leads into a question of like, what do people think that, you know, it's not the candidate that I think any of us wanted, um, Joe Biden, but, you know, what scope is there for progressives within and, you know, outside the Democratic Party to kind of push some of those things like the Green New Deal, you know, like Medicare for all, uh, you know, some of those, you know, their basic social democratic rights, really, um, you know, and perhaps some more radical points. You know, what scope is there? Do you think that some of those things could happen if Biden does win the election in November? I
4: think a, if Biden can win, I think there is a definite possibility. There's room for progressives to push really hard and be heard to what extent remains to be seen. But he has shown a willingness to move on some things, right? Like already since his primary candidacy, he's agreed to adopt Sanders's uh, tuition proposal. I believe it was like making tuition free for students whose families make less than like, it was like 130,000, maybe it was 125,000 a year. He's spoken about adopting Warren's uh, whole proposal about making declaring bankruptcy easier. I think the environment he's budged a little, but that's where he really needs to be pushed. I mean, this is the candidate who told people who are anti-fracking to vote for someone else. So we've got work to be done there, although, you know, he has said, because Kamala had said she was in favor of the Green New Deal, and I think her addition to the ticket has pushed him a little, and he has more recently come out and said that he would uh, ban fracking on federal lands, at least, which is, nowhere near good enough, but right, we're dealing in degrees of what we can live with here. Uh, I mean, degrees in both senses of the word. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Like, I guess I would, I would argue as well, it, I mean, there's going to be scope to push under, under a Biden presidency, right? Like there's a a broad um, recognition that, that a lot needs to change. Um, And even though he, you know, he's, he's sort of fought tooth and nail to resist accepting a lot of the more progressive proposals that have come out. Um, of the Sanders movement and other, other progressive campaigns, you know, there's more genuflection towards that stuff than, than there has been in, in any presidential election in years. You know, that's, that's worth recognizing it's already had an impact on the national political discourse, but then sort of how do we push or how does the left push, you know, like the temptation I think would be to get involved in um, essentially policy working groups or the lobbying world um, and to try and push through the halls of power. And obviously some people will just do that. That's a fact of life, but you know, I would argue that, well, let me put it this way, everywhere conservative or centrist Democrats are going to be under pressure from leftist challenges. Yeah. So they're going to be like watching their left flank quite closely. So that creates a big space for social movements to push. So if you can push a campaign for, you know, $15 minimum wage in, in a given state, and then you get the um, establishment Democrats coming out against that, this is not going to go well for them when they're up for election next time round. So that creates a space, I think, for grassroots organizing and campaigning, um, And that's, I think, what progressives... My view would be that that's what progressives ought to focus on. And that can be, like, multi-level. That can be, you know, unions, campaigns, you know, you name it. There's a lot of different ways to go about that.
1: You mentioned unions there, and in the landscape uh, that's very visible from the US at the moment, I'd say that, you know, uh, an activated working class or an activated union movement isn't as visible as some of the other movements there. Uh, How... How does that change or how do you see that change? Do you have any optimism considering, you know, it's not just a health crisis right now, is it? It's an economic crisis, the worst, uh, another terrible one in a 15-year period. Um, You know, a lot of people are struggling and it's going to get worse before it gets better. How do we transform that pain into change?
3: Like I think... Well, the union situation in the States is so different from here because unions are built into the structure of Australian society and, you know, industrial. We had one of the first mandatory arbitration systems in the world. So, you know, it's a really different ballgame. But I think, okay, maybe there's two models that you could derive from history, but I think there are signs that that things might be moving in this direction. One would be like, I guess, um, big focal point unionization campaigns or, or battles, you know, like teachers in Chicago you know, which is a, a quite progressive, um, you know, it's a progressive part of the states, it's a progressive part of the working class. And so you're sort of, you can choose like centerpiece battles that can win an argument for union, union struggle more broadly and create a, a sentiment towards it. And then like basically campaigns to organize, you know, some of the most um, precarious or unorganized workers, you know, like farm workers, for example, you know, and, and where the, I guess intensity of exploitation is this very strong pressure to get together. Um, and to fight for basic rights. And then if enough of that happens and if enough of it is promoted, you can see waves of, of unionisation, like that's what happened in the, in the 1930s. Um, you know, it can start to take off and almost become a movement of its own.
1: Certainly there is a growing amount of Uber drivers and rideshare drivers who desperately need unionisation and representation. And where would we be without them right now? I mean, hungry. It's a bad <laughs> joke, but it's, <laughs> but it's true in Melbourne right now. Mm.
0: I guess, um, you know, I guess in between having George Bush and Donald Trump, that certainly two of the worst presidents that I can think of um, in US history, we had, um, you know, this guy called Barack Obama and his vice president was the was Joe Biden. And we we didn't really see any progressive change, I'd have to say, in that time. I know I said we'd keep it positive, but I just wanted to, I guess... <laughs> Um, you know, I guess I'm still concerned with things around the environment and, you know, issues um, that we want to push forward as um, progressive voices that they had time. They had two terms and we didn't see a lot of progressive change, particularly around structural environmental change, trying to do, you know, even, I guess, things like the Medicare that, that um, was brought in, you know, wasn't really adequate. What, what are we going to see? Are people confident that we will see that now? And I guess the concern that I have is that, you know, the kind of movements that we have seen, not just the Black Lives Matter campaigns, but before that, the people that have been galvanised around, um, you know, the left candidates from the Democratic Party, are those people going to continue to be active inside and outside to actually push for this change?
4: I think they will. I am not here to defend Barack Obama's record, nor do I want to, but Mm -hmm. I think it makes a big difference what is happening in Congress. You know, I think that was obviously a huge impediment to Obama's progressive record. And I think it will continue to do the same for Joe Biden. I mean, who knows what'll happen. The truth is we can't predict anything anymore, but it does look likely that we can hold on to the House and it's questionable how much we can pick up in the Senate. So if we could get some control under both houses, then yeah, we could talk about some serious uh, progressive agenda items happening. And that's when we really need the left to put that pressure on. Uh, until that happens, we can get some executive orders through maybe, but that's, that's an uphill battle compared to getting him to pass legislation that the doors are open for.
3: Mm. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, okay. This is my attempt at being positive. Um, <laughs> it's not as bad as under Nixon. <laughs> like, oh you know, wow, I mean, so
4: positive. Well, I know,
3: right? Like, and I say that because, like, I think really, LBJ is the last Democratic president to have really made a big difference to people's living standards. You know, with a whole lot of, of um, welfare programs that were introduced then, and all that. But I, I mention that, right, because I think a sort of a long view and an almost a generational view of politics is what's what's needed. Um, And the dynamics are very different, you know, like with, um, well, you know, when LBJ beat um, Barry Goldwater, like Goldwater's achievement was to lay a basis for far right politics in the Republican party that then took decades to come through, but under, under Reagan, and then kind of we're dealing with the, you know, the aftermath of that in a lot of ways. Um, Whereas on the other hand, the generation of progressives that came out of 68, um, you know, they sort of, they achieved a lot through protests and, 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 you know, civil rights and you name it. but like that generation I think has by and large sort of shifted to the center um, and sort of more mainstream liberalism. Whereas like, you know, Bernie Sanders achievement was really to create a generation of, of radicals. Um, And I think they will have an impact in probably 10 years. But then the other reason why we got to think in these terms, right, is because, you know, the setup in the United States, there are so many structural barriers to progressive, to progressive change. Like, you know, one stat I just read is apparently by 2040, um, basically 70% of Americans are going to live in major cities, but they will only have the ability to vote in 30 senators as compared to the rest of Americans not living in those cities will have 70 senators based on the current electoral maps. So like the the left in the United States has got to have a long view and they've got to be thinking if we don't make very serious structural changes to the way that, you know, I mean, changing the constitution is next to impossible, but there's other things you can do. If if you don't make serious structural changes, um, you know, things are not going to go well, things are not going to go well.
4: And those those are just, you know, the, the electoral structures. we also have to take into account like the voter suppression happening. I mean, speaking of the protests, one of the scariest things to come out of the protest to me is a lot of anti-protest legislation Mm -hmm. popping up all over the country that threatens to take away voting rights from people arrested for protesting. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scary things progressives would love to put a clamp on, but they can't until they have enough power to really kind of affect that change.
0: Well, you've been listening to Uprise Radio and um, thank you again to Daniel and Melissa for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was a good time.
4: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Good to talk to you again, Jackson.
1: Always fun. Thanks, James. Talk to you next time.
0: And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone for listening.
1: Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR.
0: With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world, all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned.